Welcome to the Sam Inshu podcast, where we talk to Sam Inshu's finest about martial arts, training, and life's smaller questions. In this conversation, we talk to Master Alan Haas about riding motorcycle across the country, making hard decisions, training in a spring storm, the real last samurai, embracing the unfairness of life, washing dishes, and finding balance. This conversation is brought to you by failure. Who wants to ask you? What would you do even if you knew you would fail? So let's get started, actually. So okay. uh, yeah. So um, first question: like, What did you have for breakfast this morning? <laughs> um, actually, I had um, um, an English muffin with brie cheese and raspberry jam, and mm-hmm. some uh, a bowl of fruit with yogurt. Um, one of my favorites, or actually Lee turned me on to the uh, brie cheese and raspberry jam, but um, that was my breakfast this morning. Nice. Early oh, and coffee also. I have to have oh, coffee. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, that's a, yeah, I, I, I have to go like three, four times a day to coffee shops. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, let's see. <clears throat> um, so I want to go back to early history of your life to start okay. with. Like, uh, okay. How, yeah, how, so how was your tri- childhood like? Um, I, it was great. It was interesting. I, you know, you, you sent me a few potential questions, so it maybe gave me a chance to think about it a little bit. Um, I really had a pretty much all-American kid childhood. I was, I was actually born in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but when I was young, my dad got transferred from his job out to Dallas, Texas, and um, spent you know, several years up, I think, or, you know, like up to about fifth grade out there. And then uh, my family moved back to Atlanta where our family is. But we were pretty much, um, you know, middle class, all American family. Um, we, um, my dad was a mechanical engineer. Mm. My um, mom had never gone to college because she uh, started working when she was young to help <clears throat> pay for her sisters to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, we were a very close family. My parents were really great folks. They were really loving and kind. Um, they were um, Christians. They were, you know, very um, honorable. Um, so, you know, I had a really, uh, I, my memories of my childhood are mostly really, really good. I don't, mm-hmm. don't uh, remember. It was, it was kind of all American, you know, bicycles, baseball, and, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just um, fun and stuff most of the time. I was, it was all right. I was a pretty good student. Um, When I was really young, I, you know, when I was really young, kind of grade school and stuff, I had conduct problems because (laughs) (laughs) I was, I was pretty high energy. Um, uh, I'll tell you a quick story um, there that, I still remember to this day um, when I was in the sixth grade, um, you had to, I wanted to get on what are called the school safety patrols in the seventh grade. And mm-hmm. um, um, that would let you do all this cool stuff like helping kids cross the street and stuff like that. And we would get a cool like helmet and a, a belt and stuff and a badge. And that was, you know, I definitely wanted to do it. But the real cool thing was that we would get to, at the end of the school year in the seventh grade, we would get to go on a trip to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. and to New York City. So that's what we 
really wanted to do. And when grades were good enough for to qualify, but I'd always made C's in conduct, and you had to have at least a B or a better in conduct to be able to qualify. So I really, really tried hard the last part of my sixth grade. In the last quarter, I got a B. The teacher called us up for the report cards, and I got a B in conduct, and I was really, really excited. <laughs> and I, I mean, really excited. And on the way back to my desk, walking down the aisle, I saw this bug on the floor that was jumping around. And this impulse that came over me, and I reached down and grabbed this bug and threw it down a girl's back of her dress. <laughs> and everybody went crazy, and everybody laughed and stuff. But the teacher called me back up to the front of the class and changed my conduct grade from a B to a C. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so it was like really traumatic because I wasn't going to get to be on the safety patrols and wasn't going to get to go to Washington and New York. But my mom came, you know, like a couple of days later and pleaded with the teacher and talked her into changing it back to a B. So I was able to make the safety patrols and I did get to go to Washington and New York. Oh, nice. <laughs> but, you know, it was my childhood was pretty all American. Um, you know, when I was in high school, um, I uh, started playing music in a rock and roll band. Um, played in a band uh, called The Statics. That um, we were pretty pretty good. We played a lot of uh, you know dances and local events and stuff like that. Um, I went to you know cool high school. One of the cool things for us was that we went to a new high school when I was in the 10th grade. So I actually got to be a senior in high school from the time I was in the 10th grade all the way through the 12th grade. So that was really excellent because we were the top of the class for three years. School. What do you mean by top of the class? Do you mean you were not senior? We were literally, literally seen. There were no students in my high school higher in higher classes than us because we moved to this new school when I was in the 10th grade. So from 10th and 11th and 12th grade, there were no students. There were no 11th and 12th graders. We were always the seniors from the 10th grade on. So it kind of gave us the big head and stuff. Yeah, yeah. You got on a power, right? <laughs> yeah, we couldn't. Yeah. So we're always, in, you know, sort of top of the class, I guess you'd say. But yeah. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was good. So, yeah, kind of typical all-American. I grew up in East Atlanta, actually, not far from the dojo. Oh, really? Um, East Atlanta? Yeah. Like, which area? Like Grand Park area? No, not Grand Park. That's where uh, Lee and I lived. Um, but um, actually, East Atlanta, near the village, near East Atlanta <laughs> Village, um, on a street called Oakfield, um, off of Gresham Road. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I never ended up straying too far from from uh, home, really. All right, all right. Yeah. So uh, going back to the misconduct when you were a child, like, why you were aware that you were like, misbehaving, but you, were, you even tried to control it, but you cannot, you were just <laughs> having a hard time to control yourself or something? Like, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I think they probably have names for stuff like that today, but now it's just a high energy kid. And yeah. Um, impulsive, I guess, is the word you would use. Just, you know, I'd get excited and, yeah. and um, you know, just hard to control my energy at the time. It wasn't totally bad behavior. It was just mischievousness and, yeah. and energy. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, people not like, get you. I guess sometimes maybe you like to make people laugh sometimes too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I love to make people laugh, and people could make me laugh, and yeah. you know, sometimes <laughs> that would get out of control. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Do you have a favorite place in Atlanta? Yeah, you mentioned Grant Park, and since you know, Lee and I lived there in actually in Grant Park for twenty eight years. Um, it, it, the park itself really became one of my favorite places, um, mm. and it actually goes all the way back to my childhood because my mother and my grandmother took over a business that my grandfather founded, which was on Memorial Drive, and. Mm. For a long time, you know, they would work every day at this job. Um, And um, then later I would actually work there. But to get there, we would always cut through Grant Park from East Atlanta to Grant Park to Memorial Drive. So I had these early childhood memories on all the way through my teens of Grant Park being this kind of cool green place. You could actually drive in it back then. And it was this neat place to drive through because it had all these windy roads. But um, after living in the neighborhood um, and having dogs and walking to the park really every day, um, a lot of times, a couple of times a day, ride my bicycle in the park. There were so many beautiful places in that park and so many places where um, I could find peace, a way to kind of get away. It was it's a beautiful thing about the Grand Park neighborhood about Atlanta in general, there are a lot of places you can get away from the urban environment, which is right next door to the urban environment. I mean, from Grand Park, you can, you know, you can go to Fort Walker, which is the highest point in the park, Mm. um, and see downtown. Um, But um, that was the beauty of it. You could also go to Grand Park and you could see nature. You could see, a lot of times I would watch for birds, for hawks particularly. Mm-hmm. You could see um, a lot of nature. Um, you could be in nature. It was quiet, particularly, you know, when we lived there, you couldn't drive in it. So it was always very peaceful. It was only people, pedestrian, people walking, running, riding bicycles. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was this wonderful escape that was one block away from where we lived. And I could go there every day, mm-hmm. just about. So. Now, you know, there were many places in Atlanta I really loved, but I have to say Grant Park ended up being one of my favorite places. Awesome, yeah. The reason I asked that question, because there's, there's a spot in Atlanta, the Chattahoochee River uh, uh-huh. running trail. I usually like to go there. Just not just particular spot in that trail. I yeah. go there and I, every, uh, whenever I'm stressed out, I just like to go there, just stand there, look, Listen to the water, watching the water, watching the yeah. park. You know, just like that's the perfect spot, the most beautiful spot for me in Atlanta. So that's why I want to see all other people's like about Atlanta. Yeah. And that was uh, that's on the Chattahoochee you're talking about. Yeah, Where you go? Yeah, Chattahoochee Running Trail uh, is uh, in 285. Right. A little bit. Yeah. So that's a, the trail is like three miles, but that's a, uh, along the trail, that's a that porch right, extended out to the water. Yeah. So kind of hidden, kind of, kind of. So if you go there, it's like you kind of away from the trail, but you also mm-hmm. right next to water. It's like kind of private area. You can just like stand there and then just like meditate or just listen to the water, watch the water. You know. That's <laughs> a beautiful area. I remember um, 
A couple of things on the Chattahoochee. Um, as an architect, I used to build models of buildings. And, and um, when I was a student at Georgia Tech, myself and two or a couple of other students made a little business on the side building models for a professional architect. Mm. And we found this weed you could find only growing along the um, edge of the Chattahoochee River called Yarrow. And we would, you have to hike out along the river to pick this weed, which made it look like, it looked like little miniature trees that you could use on models. Mm. So I remember that um, as being very peaceful, hiking out and finding this weed. But the other thing I remember about this, particularly about the Chattahoochee on my Yandan test, um, back then, Osensei made us run as part of the requirement for mm. our test. And at Yandan, I think I had to run nine miles. I think that was what it was. But we ran, we, there was a, a track along the Chattahoochee and a, a big, big loop. And I um, went out there and it was the honor system and Lee went with me and kind of kept time and stuff. And I did my nine miles running along uh, this big track along the Chattahoochee. Um, I had some memories of that. I see, I see. Do you have to run a loop or just a whole long trail nine miles? It was a big loop. It was okay. like a big loop that ran kind of along the river and then looped back around. And, and yeah, I forget how many I loops think, or laps I had to do to make it be, end up nine miles. Yeah, I think we might talking about the same place. Because no, no be. the one I go to is, not, is a loop too. It's about like three miles. Yeah, so. yeah, that sounds about right. I think it was about three laps I had to do to make, make the... Uh, make it awesome. work out. Cool. All right. And that was back from Osensei's uh, running days when, when he thought all of us had to run. Okay. So is is uh, okay. It's good that we don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Nine mile, nine, eight or nine miles is quite a lot. Yeah. 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 It was at the time that was the most I had ever run. I mean, I had run a lot, but it was, you know, mostly a couple of miles at a time, stuff like that. And occasionally I did a, I do a, you know, 10k or something like that but um so that was that was it i was kind of glad after that they quit doing it because <laughs> i was getting older by that time already so yeah who's the most influential person in your life um that's a really good question i thought about that too but i have to say my mom you know my mother and my father were both really very influential to me but my mom was she was um she was you know, as we grew up, she was a stay-at-home mom. She was there all the time. You know, my example I gave you of her coming to my rescue to help <laughs> change my grade back to a B, that was, that was kind of characteristic. She always had our back. Um, she was very sweet, very loving. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, some of the people in the dojo have told, heard me tell some stories about my mom with mm. her various, like, Zen phrases that she had. Um, she was, um, she had all these little philosophies that she shared with us over the years. I don't even know if she knew she was doing it, mm -hmm. but she um, did it. And one, one example was that she, she would say, um, guy, if you want to clean the house, start by washing the dishes. And mm -hmm. her theory behind that was tackle something that was relatively easy to get done and get it done so you could keep doing the stuff that was harder and get it done. But she was really good. She had a lot of little funny things she would say like that over the years that, that kind of stuck with us. But well, she was a big influence. 
I see. What kind of funny things she say? Um, well, yeah, I, you know, sort of my own mantra that I live by, which is another one of her little phrases, which is a silly kind of Zen sounding thing. She always said, do your best, then you will know you have always done your best. <laughs> so <laughs> that was one. kind of basically, it sounds silly, but it's sort of true. Do the best that you can, and then you'll know that you did the best you can. Yeah. <laughs> um, you work at it and give it your best. And then there's nothing to be ashamed of. Mm. If you don't succeed, that's okay, because you tried. Mm. You did your best. Mm. Um, how did she... How did she get those like, wisdoms from? Like, I'm not really sure, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, I know my grandfather. I didn't know him very well, her father. Um, he passed away when I was, I was pretty young. I think I was about seven years old. So I have early childhood memories of him. But he was a, he was a fun and funny guy. And, and I, you know, I think he had a really good work ethic. I know he did. Um, and and I'm not, I think my mom always looked up to him and always used him as an example when she would tell us things about, you know, our lives and how he conducted his life and giving using him as an example. Um, so she might have gotten some of the stuff from him or she might have just mm -hmm. kind of, you know, ginned it up on her own over time as a way to kind of motivate us or... Like I said, I don't even know if she even knew that she was sounding like she was telling us these little Zen phrases, but they were just sayings that she kind of had, and she would repeat them from time to time so that they actually would stick with me. Yeah. Did she uh, read a lot? I know. She did. She read a lot. Um, she passed that along um, to all of us, I think. My brother and myself both like to read a lot. Mm. Um, my sister also, um, you know, I, I remember her, um, she worked a lot. She, she didn't have a job. She was a stay at home mom, but she still was involved in a lot of things. So she was always active uh, and stuff, but she did like to read. She, um, you know, enjoyed a good book. She read the paper, all the, you know, she kept busy all the time. Mm, I see. Yeah. Um, that's uh yeah one thing one thing about reading because uh I only recently I started like reading a lot like last like couple three two or three years couple yeah. years and then only thing I that's my kind of regret I wish that I have done it like ten years ago right I just yeah. so recently I started to read a lot of books but yeah it's kind of I guess better late than ever so yeah and that's I guess one thing that I wish I done earlier. Yeah. You know, one thing you can always learn is it's never too late to do anything, Shu. Um, and it really isn't. I mean, um, you know, at my age, looking back, you can, you can still start new stuff at this mm -hmm. point. Um, but I think reading is something that you kind of can be told to do. And then when you're in school, a lot of times you're, you know, forced or instructed to read. Yeah. But it... It's much better if you want to do it, if mm, you yeah. choose to, to, to read. And, you know, I think reading's a really, really satisfying um, thing for a lot of people. And, you know, I know it's not something for everybody, I guess, but, 
you get so much uh, perspective on life and and you know you can read exciting entertaining junk which is good and you can read more deep and philosophical stuff which is good yeah. i actually like to read a lot of different kind of stuff that yeah you know, so not one thing only okay so what, what do you what do you read particularly nowadays like, uh, um I, I vary between i vary between uh, i read fiction and non-fiction i read more fiction than non-fiction but i like historic fiction mm. a lot I like books that are are based in some context a lot, but but not necessarily. I just finished a book called The Book of Two Ways um, by an author named Jody Picoult, and it it references a lot of Egyptology, a lot of the study of ancient Egypt in it. Um, and in it, you actually um, get to try to read some hieroglyphs, um, Egyptian writing and uh and stuff in it so it's a little challenging but i also got a lot of history but it's also a fiction mm. and but it it's also a lot about life and death and love and mm. it references that through um kind of a study of ancient egypt as one of the main characters is an egyptologist but um, so it was it was a really interesting book. Um, I like books like that that teach you something, but I also want them to be entertaining. Yeah, uh, nice. I don't I, no, I don't like boring books. If it's boring, uh, you know, I have a theory. I have a, what I call the hundred page rule. You mm. read a hundred pages, and if it's not engaging after a hundred pages, then you have the freedom to put it down and move on to something else because there's only so much time and only so there are a lot of books to read so yeah yeah you know, doesn't mean you have to put it down but yeah, you know, yeah. there's a good part of, there's so many books out there right so and there's so many books out there yeah and then you don't want to fall into the sunk cost fallacy right yeah 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 so um what's your goal i think you mentioned learning is that your goal of like when you to read like do you is that the goal to learn stuff or is that something else like you, I, you know i think i'm interested in being entertained uh, <laughs> but i think i'm interested in uh, in learning but being entertained while i'm learning mm. um oh you know i've read some re i've read really good books that are are just information oriented and you know like a lot of people i certainly went through my self-help phase and stuff where i was reading books to try to figure out what the hell is all this about, <laughs> you know, but, but um, these days I mostly want to be entertained, but I really do like things when I can learn something from, mm. from that entertainment. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite books, which is one, you, you had mentioned something in your notes to me about what I might share with other people or a gift to other people. Yeah. Um, I read a book years ago called The Last Samurai, and the first thing I always have to caveat is it's not about the movie and it's not about Tom Cruise, mm -hmm. but it does have the, um, the Seven Samurai movie as one of its key elements in it. Um, but it's actually a story about uh, a young a child trying to find his way in the world um, but he's also a prodigy. I mean, he's a he's a very brilliant young man. Mm -hmm. He's he, his mom's a single mom. They don't. He doesn't know who his father is. Um, but in the process of reading this book, 
you have to go through his exploration and he's a brilliant kid. So you literally have to at times try to read in Greek and French and you also have to try to do some math that is part of the process. And if you don't make the effort to do this, it won't, the book won't be as complete um, as, it, as it could be. It's hard to explain, but it's a really good book, but it's very challenging. Mm. But So I've given it to th th only two or three or four people. And, and I think a lot of them, a couple of them just said, eh, this is too much, I'm gonna put it down. But anyway, it's a book that, I, that meant a lot to me because it was one that was hard to read, but it was also one that was very rewarding when I got all the way through it and looked back on what the lessons in it were. Uh, but that's sort of an extreme example. What, so what are the lessons? Like? The lessons in it were to um, don't give up exploring. Don't give up trying to find um, the truth. Because the story, the essence of the story is the, the boy is, is born uh, to his mother from a one-night stand, and she never tells him who the father is, and he, he wants to know who his father was, even if it was just a one-night stand. Mm -hmm. So um, he, by the time he's 11 years old, he goes out on this search, literally, to find out, find his real father. And it's, it's a dramatic process that takes him through a lot of adventures, a lot of ups and downs, and some almost life-threatening situations. Hmm. But the, the essence, he finally finds his father, and it's, his father is not exactly what he expected or what you might have expected. It's not either disappointing or shocking or surprising, but... The point is he completed his quest because he kept pursuing it. Mm. And not giving up on that goal is the lesson that I got out of it, um, that it was worth it to him. You never know where he went from then because he's only 11 years old when yeah. the book's over. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. you know, you at least know that he found something that he really, really needed that he was searching for. Yeah, yeah, accomplish something that he set out to do. Yeah, right? accomplish something he set out to do. Yeah, and never stop exploring, all right. He never gave up, he never gave up. You know, he tried, he, would, he tried adopting, literally adopting a bunch of fathers along the way just by <laughs> inserting himself into their lives. And that's part of the story that makes it so dramatic <laughs> until he actually found the right father, I the see. real father. What's, what, where does the samurai come in? He doesn't have, he doesn't Well, have his mother, because he's a prodigy and you know, he's a savant, he's a very brilliant kid. I mean, he could read Greek by the time he was three years old. Um, he also is a, 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 a savant in mathematics. He can, he understands math as the higher math forms, like math as an art form. Um, and his mother, to calm him down, and used as a reference uh, to explain life, kept going back to the movie, The Seven Samurai, ah. as a lesson platform. And that was a movie, for whatever reason, could calm him and help him. And she would use parts of the story to try to teach him life lessons. 
because she was already also a nutcase herself. So <laughs> that's a whole other part of the story. She was very brilliant herself, mm. but you have to keep going through the movie, The Seven Samurai in the book, but talking about different characters and different um, lessons that are a part of that, that very famous uh, movie by Kurosawa. Have uh, you ever seen that? You've seen the movie? No, not yet. But I would I'm, recommend I'm, it. I would recommend it. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch the movie and I'm gonna read a book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you can watch the cowboy version of it if you watch The Magnificent Seven. That oh, was a, a cowboy Americanized yeah, version of the same story in principle, based mm -hmm. on you know the seven outlaws that banded together to save this town. Oh, okay, okay, all right. I've seen that one, the Western version. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, what is your greatest struggle right now? Um, I think my greatest struggle right now is what a lot of people's greatest struggle right now, except in our case for Lee and I, it's just been sort of exacerbated. We just moved to Florida back in March. Mm -hmm. um, we're building a house down here, which is exciting. That's a struggle of a different kind, but, but we're living in a rental house in a neighborhood. We don't know very many people. We know our immediate, we've met our immediate neighbors, but because of the environment with the virus, with COVID, we can't get out and socialize. You can't get out. So we left our friends in Atlanta, all the dojo people and our other friends and family and stuff and moved down here where we actually know only two or three people pretty closely. But you can't go out and do things anyway. So that's been that's a struggle. Um, and I'm very fortunate to have Lee and the very fortunate that we like being together and are okay spending a lot of time together. Mm -hmm. But you know, with my own natural my my nature is to socialize and to be out and around friends more and we can't do that and it's been what six or seven months now or something like that so yeah. it's a struggle but a lot of people are living through the same struggle yeah yeah anything so, uh, do you see anything like positive positive from these all these negative right now for going through what we're doing right now with yeah, like COVID, anything positive from yeah i do i think there's actually going to be a lot um of things that are positive that come out of it. I mean, one thing is what you and I are doing right now. The, mm -hmm. the whole Zoom culture is is amazing. Now, I know people get tired of it, but I'll give you a personal example. Um, back in Atlanta, um, once a month, I used to go and, and uh, meet friends that I graduated from architecture school at Georgia Tech. Um, and we would have pizza and hang out and once a month would just uh, there'd be like eight or ten of us maybe and we were a very small tight class um, you know like 25 of us graduated together at, at the same time so once the virus hit we couldn't do that and on top of that I moved down here but we started doing zoom meetings instead once a month which also meant we could have people from other parts of the country join in on the meeting. So, you know, I've been able to see friends that live in California, New York, um, Virginia, DC, 
then I wouldn't have seen it those weekly, those monthly meetings at the pizza place. Yeah. Um, so that that part's really cool. I think um, people learning to, that you can work from home and and that's a, more of a possibility has been for for some people, not everybody. That's been a healthy thing. Yeah. And I think also just the reality of helping us um, look at what we had and what we lost mm. and at least for the time being we've lost in what we took for granted like things like hugging each other or shaking hands or just being able to see each other without him wearing a mask <laughs> i mean we miss that stuff and i think i think we'll respect that in a different way when mm. we're able to do it again yeah 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 you you don't know how you you don't know, I guess, what it means to you until you lose it. Until right? you lost it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what's your, uh, what's your struggle before COVID? Um, before COVID, uh, well, my most immediate struggle was moving. Um, <laughs> I mean, that was, that was a big deal. That was huge. I mean, both emotionally and physically. It was... It was um, it, I've lived in Atlanta almost all my life. I mean, I, you know, I've told you I mostly grew up there. I went to Georgia Tech. My business was there for 34, 35 years. Um, so when I retired after a period of time, um, Lee and I had always discussed the possibility of eventually moving somewhere um, different, mm -hmm. having a different experience. And, and we, you know, found this opportunity down here in New Smyrna Beach, Florida, um, and we acted on it. We bought a lot. And I designed a house, and we went through the process of selling our house in Atlanta, which we had lived in for 28 years. Um, it was hard leaving that history and um, leaving our friends and leaving the dojo, all the stuff that, that we were tied to. Hmm. And it was physically just really hard yeah. packing everything up and moving it down here. I mean, really hard. Um, so I think that was a most recent struggle, just the reality of the drama that it took to, to go from someplace we'd been and where we had roots and deep roots and move, pick up and move everything and physically get it here and resettle. Um, mm. But now that we've done it, it's been great. I mean, like I said, I do miss a lot of things, but we're, we are very happy to be here. That's good. Um, yeah, I, I can, it's, it's like, whenever I like, uh, like move out of a place, like apartment, right? For an, I, maybe I live for, for a couple of years. Yeah. I, I even like, you know, the day I move out, I always feel like melancholy a little bit. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm leaving this place, you know, where I've been a couple of years. But you yeah. have, it's like you're, you're on a different level, right? You have all that, you're 25 years, and then, you know, there's a dojo community, everything, everybody. It's not just in the house, right? It's yeah. almost, it, almost like your whole world, right? So Yeah, I mean, we did. We had to separate from our, our known world. Yeah. So how did you make that decision? How, how did that? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I, as I said, Lee and I had talked a lot over the years about the 
idea of moving. We were always tied to Atlanta for, but mostly because of my work, my business, my architecture practice was based in Atlanta. Um, and then of course the dojo, the connection there. But, um, you know, Lee uh, had grown up being near water a lot. She's a Coast Guard brat. She, her uh -huh. father was career Coast Guard. So when she was young, they moved a lot better, was always near the water. And I know that she had always wanted to, you know, live near water again. And she kind of sacrificed that for many, many years to stay with me based in Atlanta. So it was sort of fair to her to give her the opportunity to make the choice. But then I also like being close to water. So um, we, uh, we talked about it. We had looked at the idea of moving here. Leah had been coming down to New Smyrna Beach for about 10 years doing a show here for her artwork called the Images Art Festival. And we, we liked the place a lot. We liked the environment. It's very um, artsy, very creative, mm -hmm. um, small beach town. Um, we also have one really, really good friend, Sharon Adams, who used to be in the dojo many years ago, mm -hmm. who lived here part time. And she introduced us to some other friends um, that is sort of the core of our friends down here now. So, at some point, um, we had decided, well, let's look into moving to New Smyrna Beach. It seems like that's the place to be. And I remember calling a, a real estate agent, somebody suggested, and I called them and wanted to live in town, in the in-town area near the, near the beach and near downtown. And I called in and I said, we want to buy a lot. We want to build a new house. And the real estate agent said, oh, there aren't any lots, you know, there, you're, there are no lots available. You can buy an existing house and stuff, but you can't, there are no lots. So I, we kind of shrugged it off and said, I guess it's not meant to be. Hmm. Well, I came down here, um, I'm a baseball fan, and my friend Steve Winsley and I came down to go to um, Brave Spring Training um, in 20, I guess it was 2018. Yeah. 20, Ninth, golly, yeah, um, 2019. Um, and we were visiting, we were staying with friends just in New Smyrna Beach that we had met through Sharon. And out of nowhere, this lot popped up for sale literally just down the street from them. And what had happened is someone had subdivided their property and carved off a piece of it to sell separately as a lot. I went and looked at it and went home. Talked to Lee, we said, let's make an offer. We made an offer and they accepted it and boom, there we were. We bought a lot and then I started designing a house for it and now we're building the house. Awesome, yeah. Awesome, good, good. I'm, I'm glad also you are happy there, right? Yeah, we're very happy here. I mean, <laughs> it will be happier for all of us when we can get out and get to know more people do more stuff around here, but we, we go to the beach. Um, we you know, were able to take our dog to a dog beach. Um, you know, it's beautiful. We ride bikes a lot. It's very peaceful here. Um, so, but, and, um, but yes, we're very happy.
So does that mean uh, when we have an dojo people going down to the beach, they can just stay in your place? They can stay at our place, yeah. We have, a, at our, we have a really nice rental house we're in right now. Mm -hmm. We have a guest room. But in our new house, I designed a guest suite. You can come and stay. You just got your own private uh, bath and everything. So uh, no, uh, we want, we, that's one of the things. We want to encourage people to come and visit. Awesome, awesome. Uh, Nice. Um, do people surf on a beach right yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a surf. Yeah, there's there's a lot of surfers down here. Awesome. I, awesome. I think I'm pretty sure if I were younger, I'd give it a shot too. It looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. I I I tried to learn surf when I was in uh, Malibu, California, for a summer, and then I only learned a little bit, and I, it's very hard. But I always want to. Uh, learn more about it. So, so. that's uh, that's real California surfing. That's uh, cold water surfing out there. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so if I need, ever need more lessons, I might come to visit. Come on you. down. Yeah. All right. What's the happiest moment of your life? The happiest moment of my life. Mm -hmm. Gosh, you know, I was thinking, you know. Yeah, Lee said you better say getting married. Well, I was actually going to say that um, I really was, but you know, when you live seventy years, there are a lot of highs and a lot of lows. So I've had a lot of really, really happy moments. But I do remember the day that Lee and I got married, and it was it was almost surreal the feeling of. Uh, <clears throat> making that commitment to her, making that commitment to another person. And I, I just remember just, you know, I think my face hurt because I smiled so much that day. I'm serious. It oh, wow. just made my face sore. <laughs> but mm. yeah, that was definitely a happiest moment. Um, and, you know, um, just, it was just, unique in my life and something that will always be as present almost as it was then at that mm -hmm. point. So how, how, so how did you and Lee met? God, let's see, we knew each other for a long time. We, um, we have a long history. Um, we actually met, literally met, because I was dating her best friend. Mm -hmm. And her best friend and I went to a party at Lee's house um, that um, I was literally the first time I met Lee, but I was with her friend and we didn't get to know each other very much that night. Um, but um, later on, I wasn't dating her friend as much anymore. And then Lee and I um, got together and we, we dated for a while, um, but neither of us were really ready for a commitment. This is back in the late 70s. So um, we both were dating other people and we had, we had fun together and we kind of went our different ways and Lee moved to Puerto Rico and um, I went on to do different things. And But somewhere in the later on in the 80s, curiously enough, her same best friend was actually my office manager in my, my first architectural practice at the time. Mm -hmm. And we were having a party at our architecture firm. Um, and uh, Debbie, her friend, who's still our very good friend, said, oh, guess what? Lee's back in town. 
And uh, should I invite her to the party? And I said, sure, yeah, great. So I did the invite her to the party. Um, it was a beach party, believe it or not, when we used to do crazy parties and we had gotten a couple of truckloads of sand and dumped them in our parking lot. Uh -huh. <laughs> we made a beach out of the parking lot. Oh, wow. Anyway, Lee came to the, the party that night and it was like, you know, it was kind of like one of those cartoons where, you know, my heart went boing, oing, 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 and we, we looked at each other. And for whatever reason, you know, 10 years later almost or so, it was the right time. Not exactly the time we got married. It took four more years before we got married. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was when we began, that was really when we clicked and when we got together. Nice. Almost, except... Right, right after that, I had to go on a motorcycle trip across the country for a few weeks, and then when I got back, we started getting together for real. <laughs> so, is in a, so is in a trip. What, what happened on the trip that caused you to? Well, we I did? had already made a commitment to do this motorcycle trip. I see. To carry a motorcycle to, oddly enough, to my ex-girlfriend who had moved to Seattle, Washington. Mm -hmm. And we had uh, had a motorcycle that we had gotten together, and I was going to take it out to her, and she was going to pay my flight back to Atlanta. So I got a cross-country trip on the motorcycle as a process. Well, I'd already made these plans that literally before that party when I saw Lee, mm. and um, I was leaving like back the next day <laughs> to go on this trip. So Lee and I got together. I mean, we just we enjoyed being together. We danced a lot. We had a great time. And I, she'll tell you the story much better than I do. But I told her, I'll call you. What I didn't tell her was that tomorrow I'm leaving on this motorcycle trip across the country to Seattle. And we didn't have cell phones back then. So calling her was about like three weeks later. <laughs> and she wasn't real happy about that. You were playing hard to get. Yeah. <laughs> But I did call her, and everything worked out in the long run. But she was kind of pissed for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, she, so, yeah. Get her to tell you the story one day. She's better at it than I am. I will ask her too. So, um, motorcycle trip night. Like, how how was that? How was the trip like? Ah, oh, it was great. It was it was a lot of fun. It was um really nice motorcycles. A Honda Nighthawk 750. A good road bike, um, and um, I remember I had to get there in 10 days. That was our, my agreement um, to get it out there in 10 days, but that gave me enough time to visit, stop and visit a few friends along the way, including my brother who was out in Dallas and some other, other people. Um, and, but you had to ride a lot to make that happen. So I was averaging like 500 miles a day on the bike. To, so that I could get places and then stay a day or so mm. and then go on. Um, but it was great. Um, I didn't have any misadventures. Um, I, the only time I laid the bike down was like the first day I went out and I remember stopping um, at, uh, at near Lookout Mountain. and was going to stop and take a little breather and I stopped on a hill and put the bike on the, went to put the bike on the kickstand and it just went over on its side and 
this is a big bike. Unfortunately, there were some very nice people there that helped me pick it back up and get it going. Never any other real issues. Um, yeah. I had a scary ride out in Utah, I remember, because I got into a windstorm and it was blowing so hard that I was afraid if I stopped, it would blow me and the bike over. So I was riding it anyway. Uh, but and this was a powerful bike. Yeah. This wind was so hard, I could only go about 40 miles an hour. Um, but I was afraid to stop because I didn't, I just felt like it'd blow me over. And I was out in the middle of nowhere and I couldn't pick the bike up by myself. Mm. So I kept going. And I remember topping this hill. And I guess I got into the lee of the wind or something. But on the other side of the hill, it was beautiful, it was calm. And I had one of the most beautiful rides down this mountainside in Utah. Mm. And everything was great after that. Nice, nice. Freedom of the ride. Yeah, it was oh, freedom. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like you have a, you, you, you were a very pretty wild uh, youth. Almost like you got crazy parties, motorcycles driving around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was young, I, motorcycles were a big part of my life. Um, I started riding motorcycles when I was probably about 13 or 14. Um, and my dad was, my dad liked cars and stuff. And when I was really, really young, he had a motorcycle. And I know, I think that was an early influence. And mm. then I started riding dirt bikes when I was pretty young. And then, mm. Later, when I went with friends and we got into racing, you know, motocross and some and what called enduro rides, which are long distance rides through the woods and stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, in fact, I rode motorcycles. One of the reasons I got into uh, martial arts yeah. is because I quit riding motorcycles when I was 27 years old because I thought I was too old to ride motorcycles. And the way we used to ride, I was too old probably. Um, but um, I never, I, I was kept searching for that same kind of adrenaline, that rush that I felt riding dirt bikes and riding motorcycles. So for a little while I played, um, I used to play baseball in high school and stuff. And I, for a little while I played um, tournament softball with some guys that I knew from high school. And that was a lot of fun. Um, it was serious softball. It wasn't like beer, beer tournament softball it was like serious tournament softball um, and then um, I had taken done some Tai Chi in the 70s and, and I really liked that mm. but it was it was it was too soft for me at the time um, oh, it's really uh, <laughs> yeah yeah I mean oh, since I you know I said it best he told us a long time ago he said oh in karate you can learn to defend yourself in six months or a year and Stuff. But he said, but Tai Chi take 20 years. And then he said, but then you don't need anything else. Well, I was too young for that back then. So I, I liked it. But I remember I saw the teacher, Master Chong, his brother, who was a Kung Fu instructor, came one time and gave a demonstration of Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. And it was awesome. I thought, man, that's what I want to do is like jumping and kicking and all this crazy stuff. So anyway, I went and played softball for a while. And then one day I was at the Little Five Points Pub in Atlanta, in Little Five Points. And I saw this poster that said, now in Atlanta, Kung New Oriental Martial Arts. And it looked, it was really nicely designed poster. Um, it was very inclusive sounding. And I said, I'm going to give it a call. 
And I called David Smith, who was the founder, and they had just started doing classes at, um, at the Morningside Recreation Center. So I called and he said, well, we have class tonight, can you come down? And that particular night I couldn't come because I had to watch Hill Street Blues. <laughs> that was my favorite TV show at the time. Which, uh, and then I remember I went to the next class, I think was on a Thursday night. Um, I, I don't think I missed a class until I was a black belt. Mm. Just, it was, it clicked. So, what, what about it that clicked for you? Um, right away, it was the, you know, the positive energy. When I went, uh, it, it was, you know, everybody there pretty much was in their 20s mm. um, and stuff. Like I said, I was like in my late 20s, so there were like people that most of them were like 24, 25. So, um, but it was a lot of energy. And um, David, Sensei David was a really good instructor and he was doing this by himself at the time. Mm. And my first class was like 20 people. And it was the first class that he had actually made public. He had started teaching a few months before um, with just friends of his that, a guy named Joe Ray, who, well, let me give you a little quick history. David moved here to Atlanta, moved to Atlanta from University of Florida, where he had trained with O-Sensei. And he had graduated in art school as a photographer, he moved to Atlanta, and started his photography business. A guy named Joe Ray also graduated from the University of Florida, and he was a green belt at the time. He moved to Atlanta, and he tracked David down and said, I want to keep doing Kung Nu. I mean, would you teach me? So David said, okay, if I'm going to teach you, I'm going to get some friends together and I'll teach them too. So he got some of his friends together and started teaching them. And it went really well. I mean, he had a nice group of uh, people that he started, had taught all the way through One Green Stripe. And then he also taught Joe. Um, so he got to the point where he said, I'm going to give it a shot. And he decided to go public with it. And he rented this, uh, some space at the Morningside Recreation Center. So he had classes there two nights a week. And then he advertised, and that was the poster I saw. And that was the class that I went to. It was like, like I said, one of his, his first public class. And that's kind of what we consider the founding of Sung Ming Shu. Yeah. Um, that was like, I think it was March of 1981. But that's kind of what, since it was the first public class, we've always used that as sort of the founding date of something too. Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah, so yeah, that's one of my questions. And I was going to ask you if you were the founding members of something too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. we were in that class, and uh, there was twenty people or so, and you know, over time it dissipated. There weren't as many, but there were some really um, solid people. Um, Myself and since I Richard Filia, Richard Filia were was in that. He was actually in David's friends group uh, of students that were really a little ahead of me at the time. But Richard and I were the first students to actually go all the way through to get black belt mm. um, that had started at Sunming Shu. And then Richard's future wife Teresa was also in my class at the same time that when I started, 
And she went on shortly after us to become the first female black belt from Sunday. Sun oh. Wow. Nice. So, yeah, way back a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. When you saw the poster, right, in a, that drawn to you to, to yeah. call on a Summit, call Summit Unite, what do you remember? What's the content of that poster or something? Yeah, I do. I do remember. I don't know if I'll get all exactly right, but it, when I say it was very inclusive, it was very inclusive. It said, now it said something like this Now in Atlanta, when we Oriental martial arts, um, self defense um, and training for um, everyone, men, women, and children of all ages, races, and cultures. I mean, it was something like that that was on the poster. And I looked at that and I thought, wow, that's, you know, that rings true to me. It sounds real. And then that is very much true of Kung Nu and Sung Ming Shu. It's very inclusive and it's always been like a family, kind of like an extended family. And it was back then. Uh, I mean, when we were in those days in the 80s and stuff, when we were all young and very, there, I don't think anybody that I can think of, only a couple of people were married. Mm. I mean, we just hung out all the time, all the time together. We partied together. We, you know, went to movies together. We um, shared meals together. It was, that was, that was a core group of friends that stuck together for a lot a long time yeah so uh, it was i mean it's still characteristic of something exactly uh, actually recently i you know i spoke to like two people and i asked people like why are you enjoying join something shoe and they always yeah. oh, I check out a website and then there's a description it just feel like very inclusive you know yeah. so, so i said oh okay perfect yeah <laughs> well it, it, it's consistent in his you know, it's amazing because it's remained that way. I, I, I know that when I started training in Kung Nu, I never thought I'd be doing that 35 or 40 years later. I mean, I thought this is a lot of fun and I, this will be something I'll do for a while. But yeah, I think it's always been that the spirit that O-Sensei projected, um, which was, um, martial arts discipline as both an art and a discipline, but also he projected love. Mm. And, you know, sometimes that sounds sappy, but it's, he did, he projected care and love to people. It's, and he could be tough, you know I mean? As tough as he was, he could be really scary and really dif disciplined and really tough. But, he was also had this big heart and he was also um, able to make you feel very special. Mm -hmm. Make everybody feel cared for. Mm. So he projected that and it carried over into his students and they carried it over for the most part. It's certainly true in Sung Ming Shu into the dojo. Mm. Nice. That remind me of a quote of night. The leader is right. There's a good leaders like create followers. Yeah. But great leaders create leaders, right? Yeah. He kinda he kinda create his students and those students go out and then create like other dojos and That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I mean if you think about it, he was just the seed um, and he came to 
University of Florida to go to graduate school in entomology. And he was just a student. Mm. And similar to the way that David Smith started Sungming Shu, one of his co-graduate students, Frank Van Essen, asked him if he would, he realized that, uh, who of Sensei was and that he knew um, martial arts. And he asked him if he would start teaching him some martial arts. Mm. So um, it was kind of similar to Joe Ray asking David Smith, I want to keep learning. So mm. he started teaching at the University of Florida, Sensei did. Um, and it just boomed and blossomed and became this huge phenomenon on campus um, that, you know, there were, there were times when uh, I know I was not, a lot of people think I went to the University of Florida, uh, but I did not. But uh, since I'm from that generation and a lot of my friends were original students of his from there, like Master Mary and, mm -hmm. and um, Master Allison and, and um, others, Master John Burns and stuff. Um, I know a lot about what it was like back then. And they, they would have classes of 200 people on Florida field at a time. It was, it was a huge phenomenon on the campus. Wow, 200, all right. 200 at a time, yeah. Yeah, I remember when I started, it was quite, it's a basketball, basketball call, right? So it's, we have quite a lot too, but I don't think we have 200. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, we had, um, well, at our training camps, of course, we've had many, many people, you know, uh, uh, close to up to 400 or, or more people. Yeah. Um, but this was like beginning classes they would have. And the stories I've heard about how they had to communicate. So senior students like Master Mary and some of the other senior students, Master Lop, um, uh, they would have to be, oh, Sensei would give the overall instruction, but they would have to be like um, little drill sergeants and go out to those students and sort of help tell them what to do and tell, give them corrections and stuff. Mm. And I think one of the reasons that people, like Ms. Stengi, you like, uh, like study in UF, right? I think it's because you talk about old sensei uh, stories quite often. Yeah. It seems like you almost like, you like him, you look him so well, it's almost like you were like, just like study from him from the beginning, right? I think that's, that's one reason. Like, that's not, yeah, not from the very beginning, but, but because, um, because of Master Mary, I was introduced to O-Sensei when I was a, I think I was a one brown strike. Uh, the first time I went to Gainesville with, with Mary to, I think, um, or, or the first time I went to Gainesville, probably with David, but that was before Mary. Um, I was probably a one brown stripe. Um, I got to meet O Sensei, and then later on, I would I would take trips down there with Mary on a regular basis to, and we would train. Anytime we go down there, we train directly with with O Sensei. Mm. Um, and after Master Mary came to Atlanta and was teaching Atlanta, and again, you know, we're pretty young. I wasn't married. We didn't have as as um, other responsibilities, um, we would go down there two or three times a year, four times a year, and mm. train with those sensei. So I was able to get to know him better and better. He's had amazing, you know, amazing recollection. He would always um, remember what 
you talked about the last time he saw you. Um, and, you know, everybody knows that later in his life, he had trouble with his memory. He lost his memory. Mm -hmm. That's with his complications of Alzheimer's. Um, but early on, he had an amazing ability to be very present. So like me and you talking, and then I might go away for three months, and we were talking about something, and we come back, and he would say, oh, you know, what about so-and-so and so-and-so? Like, we just were talking about that. He had this great ability to make you feel like you really, he listened very much directly to you. Yeah, and he cares, right? Yeah. He cared. He really cared. Yeah. So how was, talking about training with O-Sensei, how was training with O-Sensei right? O-Sensei, you know, a lot of people in the dojo tell Master Mary stories. So if you take Master Mary and kind of project that up to Sensei, because that's where she got a lot of her her training directly, is that was what it was like with him. He was intense. He was extremely intense, especially earlier on. Um, he he was very strict and very disciplined, not mean not mean discipline, but very strict and very demanding. Um, and you would push, 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 push over and over and over again. Uh, I remember like, you know, one night we got, I remember getting down there and we were practicing flying kicks and you just had to do flying kicks for two hours, you know, over and over and over again. Um, he was, he would push really, really hard. Um, in the early days, he was very traditional um, um, in his training. And that, for example, we didn't get water breaks because mm -hmm. that was supposedly um, he, that was something that he didn't think that was discipline. Mm -hmm. you, you shouldn't have to have a water break. Yeah. Uh, he he softened over time and got a little more pragmatic, and you know started realizing you know you can kill people. <laughs> if you're not careful but but he was always he was always very firm and he always had a strong vision of what he was doing um i'll give you another example when i was training for my black belt you had to go down and do training sessions like they still do with but this was with a sensei and we were practicing um bow work with the bow and mm -hmm. um, master ulysses was one of his senior students and Sensei had, uh, there was a whole bunch of us that were uh, training for black belt out on the floor. And he has, and, and this is in the center dojo down there, which was the main headquarters, which used to be bowling alley. So he had us going up and down the floor, crossover, um, doing figure eights with the bow. Mm -hmm. You go all the way to the end of the dojo one way, and then you have to go back all the way to the other way, doing figure eights, all the way one way, all the way back, over and over. Well, at one point he took a break or just went off into his office. And because um, Master Ulysses didn't know what he should do and none of us knew what we should do, we just kept doing up and down the floor, up and down the floor, doing figure eights with the bow mm -hmm. for like another 20 minutes or a half hour. <laughs> Nobody would stop because we, because he could get really pissed mm. sometimes, and he, he could be scary. Mm. But 
he came back up and it was hilarious because he comes back out and he goes like, oh, okay, so what you doing? What are you doing? You know, like, we are you nuts? Are you still doing this? <laughs> Do something different. <laughs> but we were also afraid we wouldn't stop. I see. So, but he was great and he had, you know, he had every, almost every, every lesson would end with a lesson on philosophy, mm. which was part of his balance. Mm. Um, you would have to sit down after working out hard and you sweat and soaking wet and stuff and you'd sit down and he'd start talking to you about the philosophy, mm. whatever was on his mind at the time. But he also would quiz us. Mm. Um, it was always a scary time because he would like just point at you and go like, okay, what's the uh, five, uh, five fees? And you know, you better know it or you would get the uh, dagger eyes from him. But, yeah. um, but it also was a time when he shared a lot, you know, mm. he conveyed because I was fortunate enough to be around at times when he was actually creating some of the philosophy and mm. um, could actually, you know, hear his thought process. And, and sometimes he would actually challenge us to like, okay, what's, uh, what's the next one you think it should be? And mm. you would discuss it a little bit and then he would decide, okay, this is what it is. Um, but, um, so it was always a balance. And then, you know, when it was all done and you were finished working out, he would always say, okay, let's go get something to eat. And, uh, you know, the tradition. He, and then he was just, a, he was just a really nice guy and really, really fun to be around. Nice. What's the, what was his thought process when he crafting his philosophy? Wow, that's really complex. I, I mean, it was really deep. I really think the essence of it was that Osensei was trying to find a way to convey to us um, the principles of the Kongdu as, as he was developing them himself. He was developing it. I mean, this, you know, think about it at the time. He was in his 40s and stuff early on when we were first, when I was first trained. <clears throat> so he was relatively young mm -hmm. and he was still creating Kung Du. I mean, when I first started training, the Kung Du was divided between hard style and soft style. There were two separate paths you could go down. You could take, you know, the hard style training, the soft style training, and very few people crossed over. Like uh, Master Kirk Farber was one of the first people that actually trained in both hard and soft style. But his goal always along had always been to merge the two, but he used to tell us that we weren't ready yet. Mm. Well, I think that was what he was doing with the philosophy, he was trying to, to develop the, his thoughts behind Kung Nu and put it into a form that would be easy for us to remember and, and understand. And if you look at the philosophy, it's, it's some of it's about self-defense, Mm -hmm. And some of it's about principles of life. Um, and, and that's sort of what he really saw as Kung Nu. It was not just martial arts, self-defense, you know, kicking and punching. It was martial arts as a way of life. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was, a, it was an ongoing evolution um, of him developing his thoughts of what Kung Nu is and trying to convey it. Master Mary was really, really great. 
from the very beginning, before my time, before I knew her, but I am fortunate to have some of her original notes, um, she was a great note taker. She would keep notebooks and she was very thorough and she would basically record what he said. Um, much like Master Elizabeth evolved and did that later on herself and always been really good at keeping track and, and other people also, but Mary was one of the first. So she would take notes of what he said. And those notes eventually became the first manuals. Mm. And the first manuals were just little mimeographed copies of his notes that were sort of organized that eventually got developed into <clears throat> the original manuals that were printed and made into what became the hard copy manuals that eventually became what we have now online. Oh, wow. I have no idea about that, uh, Mary's legacy of that. No, can't do many. All right. <laughs> yeah, no, she is. She is. Um, um, I guess she, she's one of the main editors of, of the early manu manuals because she that was utilizing her notes and Sensei Joe Montague and others that kept good records of what a Sensei would say and and then developed them into the to the writings that became the manual with a Sensei's editing. Yeah. Got you. That's good. Now I'm gonna look at the menu completely in a different light now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, if um, how has like, oh, sensei, any like, has he influenced your personal life in any way? Oh, sensei. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Of course. I mean, you know, because of Kung Nu has been a huge influence on my life. Oh, sensei was a huge influence on my life. Mm. Um, but, you know, he went from n not just as an instructor, but, you know, I was fortunate to be able to call him a friend. He was a friend over time and um, he was always up there as, as the head of our style and, and stuff, but he could become, he would, he would be very personal. I'll give you a little story on that. Um, one night we were in Atlanta and Lee and I were together before we were married, but about we were about to get married and we were having dinner with O Sensei. And he um, he was talking to Lee and he, he he could be very engaging. He loved talking to Lee. And he said, like, okay, now you're gonna become you were gonna get married. Now you have to become part of the Kung Nu family. And she said, well, what do you mean? And he was like, well, now you have to just get one green stripe, just one green stripe. So he made her promise that she would at least, or he asked her to, he didn't make her promise, he didn't force her. Mm. But he asked her to take just one level of Kung Nu and get one green stripe, so she would become officially a member of the Kung Lu family. Mm. Well, Lee sort of thought she had gotten around it. She said, okay, next time that Sensei Maceo teaches the first beginning class, I'll take class. And um, months went by and, and Maceo ended up teaching a beginning class and she was true to her word and she took the class and she got her one green stripe. And O-sensei didn't forget that. He came back to her at another time and, uh, and after she got her one good time, he got like, okay, now you're a member of family, a <laughs> new family. So he could be very funny and very um, 
personable and very intimate. Mm, nice. At the same time. Yeah. Oh, so you, you mentioned that you always, always like after training, you always, people always go like have dinner and stuff with him, right? So how? Yeah, well, I mean, we would actually go in down in Gainesville. The, the truth was we would go out to have dinner with our sensei after training. Yeah. And then he would go home and then we'd go out partying. <laughs> that was serious. There was, there was a lot of fun times dancing. I mean, everybody, it seems like over the years, people that trained in Kung Lu like to dance. Mm. So we would, a bunch of people would go out and we would um, go dancing. For a long time, they had these, um, they couldn't do this anymore mm. for a lot of reasons. But they had these public hot tubs down in Gainesville. And you could rent the hot tub. So we would all go, you know, a group of people. And I remember, you know, one of the famous characters, Jerry Gordeski, Kirk, and Robert, and Elizabeth and stuff. We would rent these places and go uh, to these hot tubs, get some champagne, go to the hot tubs, hang out. Um, so we did a lot of socialization together as a group. But it usually, you know, a lot of times we'd start out with dinner with those sensei and then partying afterwards. And then the next morning, a lot of times there would be breakfast over at sensei's house. Mm. It was service breakfast, especially people coming from out of town like myself. Um, he would want to give us breakfast, and he wasn't the best cook, but he, <laughs> he was, it was his heart was in it. Yeah, <laughs> you taste the love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, how was the conversation around a dinner table when you have like dinner with him? Like, how was the conversation like? It was it was all kinds of stuff. I mean, it would be a lot about Kung Nu, a lot of discussion, but a lot about people and personalities. He would talk, he wanted to know what you were doing in your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, he always asked me about my business, my architecture. Mm -hmm. He would remember that and he was very curious. Um, I don't know if you remember, but for a, a long time, there was a, oh, since they had a dream of building is a, a world headquarters, a physical world headquarters. Mm -hmm. Wanted to build a building that was a center where people could come from various dojos all around the country to train. And actually there would be some like dorm rooms there. And it would be like, it would have been if that ever happened, kind of the idea of where we'd go for our annual training camp. But you could train there any time of the year. Mm. So, um, I actually did a design for the building for it um, at one point, and we were trying to we raised we raised actually a lot of money toward the idea of, of doing this. But um, he would talk to me a lot about the architecture of of what he wanted, <clears throat> what he wanted the building to be, what the space was to be. But you know, sitting around a table with him, you could talk about pretty much anything. Um, he was still he would tell stories of Vietnam. Mm. Um, I mean, most everybody, a lot of people, if you don't know the history, um, it's pretty dramatic. I mean, he, he had to escape with the family from Vietnam. So sometimes he would get emotional and tell stories of his memories, and sometimes they were funny. Mm. Um, he could be a very, very funny guy. <laughs> um, but, um, I mean, he, he, was a, he was a real human being. He had this whole range of emotions that we all... And by the way, he was a scary-ass driver. 
<laughs> you never want to ride in a car with a sensei, which I did several times, but he drove really fast and he thought red lights were only a suggestion. <laughs> so nice. he was he was he was a real guy. <laughs> yeah. Isn't there any story you would like to share with like you share with uh, others, like of, of sensei story? Or maybe you already told told it already? Well, yeah, some of the things that, that we've kind of told you. Um, I mean, one of the things I'll tell you that's not as funny, but is a part of the experience that, that I have with those sensei and others also had. I was, I was around him um, some later in his life when he was starting to lose some of his memory and some of his, his um his presence, mm. uh, and I had an opportunity. I had an experience once where I drove him from one place to another and spent some time with him, just he and I, at, during this period of time. And it was um, it was beautiful and sad at the same time because to me, I had been able to. I had been around him, and knew his mind to be this brilliant, diverse, um, exploring thing that, you know, he was always trying to learn and improve and teach. And then it was harder to see sometimes when that wasn't as easy for him. Mm -hmm. And I was able to spend some time personally with him during that period of time. So, um, <clears throat> He was a real, he was a human being and like all of us, you know, we're not perfect. Mm -hmm. and, um, his, his struggles toward the end were, were difficult for a, mm -hmm. a lot of us and people that he was very close to, his family obviously, and people that really cared for him, um, it was hard. But, yeah. so yeah, um, there are, you know, tons of Osensei stories, if you wanna hear Master Robert is the best at, you know, he's got a, a book full of those sensei stories and, you know. Right. Maybe, I would, yeah, maybe I will invite him on a podcast sometimes to like, yeah, get, yeah, yeah, if you want to hear, you want to hear a bunch of hoo-ha, talk to Robert and <laughs> you'll get the, you'll get the whole uh, gambit. But yeah. um, anyway, but sensei, uh, you know, what I'd say is just, I was privileged to, have known him, to have trained with him, both you know from very early on to experience watching Kung Du develop mm. and having witnessed that and been somewhat a part of that to the point when he was older and uh, you know the illness affected him. So it was like I got to watch a transition in a life of a person that I really was influenced by and really loved and really cared for. Yeah. Um, it was a lesson in life itself, one yeah. that we all live. Yeah. Do you, what's the lesson that you just mentioned? The lesson is that um, life is not always predictable. Mm. And life is not always what we would call fair. Mm. For me to 
CEO Sensei, you know, struggle with his loss of memory or uh, later in life. Never seemed fair. He wasn't very, he wasn't that old. He was um, in his 60s. Um, and, you know, from my perspective now, I, yeah. that's not that old. Yeah, um, not that old. And, uh, it's you know it's not fair, but it's also it's also life. Life um, is complex, and it um, it's not always fair. Some of the you know there's theories that some of the struggles he had later on were an outgrowth of some of the stress that he lived when he was very much younger in Vietnam. Mm and the transitions that he had to live through and the life and death situations that he both lived and witnessed that, you know, that eventually caught up with him. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but, um, you know, I think the lesson for me was that you live the life you're given, you live it to the fullest that you can, um, you always try to improve and get better but you also know that sometimes you have to accept some harsh realities and hopefully you can get by those things um, but you know eventually we all will there'll be a day for all of us um, you just want your life to oh sensei could no matter how it was at the end he was a person that could always look back on his life and know Look how many people he influenced, how many lives he impacted, how many people he helped, like you said, you know, become leaders themselves. So what could be better about a life than to be able to get to the end of it and say, I was an influence that helped other people become an influence of good and um, contributed to the well-being of others and to their learning, it couldn't, you know, it couldn't be better than that. Yeah, yeah. What's um, what's his hope for Kanu? Like, you, what was O Sensei's hope? Yeah, yeah. Do you do you, do you get a glimpse of like? Do you any get any impression of his hope? Like, yeah. I mean, I know that he he was he knew that he wanted Kanu to live on beyond him. Mm. Um, you know, he conveyed that um, literally by handing down the leadership of Kung Nu to Grandmaster Quinn before he um, had retired, so to speak, or, or sort of stepped down, or before he died, he handed down the leadership to Grandmaster Quinn because he wanted to know that Kung Nu was um, established and in good hands so that it would continue on beyond his time. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a, a rite of passage, this Master Mary passed Song Ming Shu Dojo down to me because, you know, she wanted to know that it would carry on and I passed it on to Sensei Gordon. And, you know, there will be a time in the future when Sensei Gordon, I believe, honestly, will pass it on to the next generation. I, I truly believe and would like to believe that both Kung Nu and Sung Ming Shu will be here 
long past my days in the world and long past our days in the world. That, that it's a, a life force that will continue because I think it is a life force that is a good thing for a lot of people. Mm, yeah. So, what's the so some issue I have been at the dojo for like past like almost forty years now. What yeah. What do you think is the secret to our longevity? Um, are you, I would have said good parties a long time <laughs> ago, but yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I think it is that that sense of uh, family and acceptance. Um, you know. Uh, I think you'll hear a lot of people tell you that when they walk into the dojo, uh, they're made to feel welcome and they're encouraged. I think um, the way that we teach is, is based in discipline and hard work, but it's also founded in encouragement. Um, I don't know if you ever heard philosophy of the good coach, bad coach kind of philosophy um no and you know the i have both of them when i was in high school yeah. but the bad coach is the kind of coach that is and it doesn't mean they're a bad coach like they don't do a good job it means they're tough mm -hmm. they're they're you know they can be rough mean and um criticizing and sometimes even cruel and it can get really good results sometimes and the good coach is then encouraging and uplifting and rewarding and it can get good results mm. both of them can be successful um, I think Sung Ming Shu historically has always tended toward the good coach side where we're always encouraging uplifting um, challenging people it's not because we're easy going and it's easy um, but rewarding people for their efforts and rewarding people for their dedication um, rather than scaring them and yelling at them all the time and, and um, making them feel humiliated. And um, both ways can work, they really can. Um, but, you know, since they had a little bit of that combination in him, in his one person, I mean, like I've said, he could, he could yell at you, he could scare, be scary. Um, he could, also be very, very encouraging, make you feel like the top of the world just because mm -hmm. you wanted to please him, wanted to make him happy, which yeah. made you happy. Yeah, yeah, you, you need both. So I think Sung Ming Shu has continued that, that path through the personality of, of its leaders. Different kind of approaches mm -hmm. with the different leaders, but still that, that feeling of, of encouragement and support has always been there. Yeah. Going back to your story a little bit, and when you say, so you have training for Mark's canoe like for like 35 years, but in the first beginning, right, you start the first day, first week, but at what point did you, because you mentioned that you did not expect you're going to study this for like, you know, for like for the next 30 or 40 years, right? But what, at what point did you say, hey, I want to stick with this for, the, for, for, to, keep going with, with, with this canoe, right? Um, pretty close to right after I started, mm. I felt the energy in the room and the challenge. And I'll tell you a couple of quick stories um, that, that sort of <clears throat> reflect in a, not 
you know, sometime after we started, but before my first green stripe test, you know how we still to this day have a tradition of giving our classes or asking our classes to give themselves a name? Mm, yeah. Or your class name? Yeah. Well, my class, they, we were um, working out uh, across the street. There was a little park across from the Morningside Recreation Center. And we were doing kata class out in the park because we couldn't use the recreation center on Saturday. So we would do kata class out in the park across the street. So one Saturday we were out there doing kata class and we started having a storm with a lot of rain and thunder and lightning and everything. And Sensei David just kept us working out. I mean, we were getting soaked, it was raining and it was also lightning. It was kind of scary, but we kept working out and there was something that was really invigorating about that. Well, then another time we were in the dojo one night, we were working out hard. And there was another storm and the lights went out. The only lights in this room, the building didn't have any windows in the workout area in the recreation center. So the only lights were these emergency lights that they put over the doors, you know, like the exit lights with emergency lights. So it was dimly lit and we kept working out. So we, our class was inspired by that dedication and that intensity, and we named our class Spring Storm as a result. Oh, wow. But that was kind of the energy that grabbed me. It was a little bit like the adrenaline I felt from riding motorcycles. Mm. It was that same like, man, this feels good. It's exciting, it's intense, it's tough, but it's fun too. And then the time that I knew that I made this commitment really, um, was I was still doing tournament softball at the same time. And when I said this, this was tournament softball, we would actually play these games so that our team could get into tournaments. And because the guys that I played with were a bunch of high school baseball players, good baseball, good softball players, baseball players, we, we won our, so we would always get in these tournaments. And I was the, um, at the time, I was the leadoff batter on our team, and I played shortstop. And we were in this tournament, but the night before, the, I think like a Thursday, and the tournament was on a Saturday, I had hurt my toe in, in training at the dojo. I stubbed my toe really bad, and I, I basically had a hard time walking. So I went to the game to my coach that Saturday, and said, I can't play, coach. I can't, I can't play. I can't walk hardly. And he got really pissed at me. And he said, okay, you got to decide. You want to be a karate man or a baseball man? And I made the decision that night. I went and kept training in the dojo, and I quit playing softball. <laughs> and oh, nice. I, I became a karate man. <laughs> so that, that was pretty much symbolic of the – dedication and I don't know if it's entirely true or not but yeah. I don't really don't think I'm I mean, in my memory I didn't miss a class until I got my black belt mm. I mean like I said I wasn't married at the time I, I could focus I was a maniac back then I trained a lot mm. it was fun and the people around me were doing the same thing and we just mm. we just had a great time we'd worked out a lot mm. um, so you know, and then once you got black belt, it was like, there's a t-shirt we had that I just wore recently that says black belt's only the beginning, um, teaching is learning. Mm. You, oh, Sensei um, conveyed that to us, and 
His daughter, too, by the way, has always said, you're not really a black belt until you're a showdown. I'm just giving you that heads up. Right. Right okay. Because too many people would reach black belt and think that was the end and quit. They thought, this is it. I made it to the top. I got a black belt and I can quit. So her two-side philosophy was, you got to stick it out until you get that first red strike to prove you're really a black belt. All right. Well, it be then it became kind of like an addiction. You had that first red strike, you'll find out, you might find out for yourself. Then you're like, oh, then I want that second red strike. <laughs> you know, and that's just out there. It's only another couple of years or so, you know. And then before you know it, you know, you know, years go by. But it was always because of the friends and connections that we made and the family-like feeling and the motivation to keep improving that made me stick with it. All right, awesome. That's a, those are both very, very good stories. So that means I need to start training harder on my showdown. Then. <laughs> you better train hard on your showdown test. How would you describe uh, Master Mary as? Um, you know, Mary came to Atlanta. Um, I think she came up while, while I was training for black belt. I remember the first time I saw her, mm. she came up to Atlanta to give a test. And that's the first time I met her. And um, I had always heard the story from Sensei Joel Markwell. Joel was the second black belt to come up to Atlanta after David. He had graduated from University of Florida. He came up to Atlanta um, and was uh, taught with David. And Mary had been his primary instructor in Gainesville in Florida, University of Florida. And I remember he talked a lot about, oh, Master Mary, Master Mary, she's so good, she's so tough, stuff like that. And I had this, already had this image of her as being something special. But then I always, you know, and this is probably sounds awkward, but I always was wondering like, wow, but you know, she's a woman, how could she be so tough? So then that was, that tells a story about where my head was at back then. Well, so I finally meet her, she comes up to Atlanta and I remember we were having a test out in the uh, park, Candler Park, I think. Um, and she gave, she didn't give my test that day, but she gave another test and she did a demonstration. She did, I think she did Sakura Kata hmm. after the test as a demonstration. And it's the first time I saw her and the intensity of her. But then I also remember how nice she was. She was very nice to all of us and very kind and stuff. And then not too long after that, she moved to Atlanta because she, she, she left to, to move up to Atlanta for work, actually. And hmm. um, she started at the dojo. And since David was still in the dojo, he was still the head instructor, but Mary was a higher rank than he was. Hmm. So, um, it was a little awkward for a little while because she was higher rank, but he was still the head instructor, but she was very generous. She never tried to bully him or force him in any way. Mm. Um, but just coincidentally, um, David, David had hip problems. He had injured his hip and he, he was in a lot of pain, I, I learned later. Mm. Um, I think Mary being at the dojo in Atlanta gave him an opportunity to step down mm -hmm. from the dojo <clears throat> so that 
she actually took over when he stepped down from the dojo, I think in 1986. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and then she was the head, head instructor, of course, for many, many years after that. Um, Mary was a lot, in a lot of ways, like O-sensei. She was a very intense. I mean, you can talk to sensei dog, he'll tell you great stories about her and others that have known her. She was, she was very intense. She was, um, high strung was a word that I don't feel uh, um, inappropriate using for her. She was temperamental. She was high strung, very demanding. Um, but like I said, she had that balance. She could be remarkably compassionate and, and caring. Um, I had the good fortune of, you know, being both her, her senior student for a long time but also her friend and at one for a period of time I was her employer she actually came to work for Pimsleur Haas Architects as an office manager for us for a period of time um, so we had this multi-dimensional relationship mm -hmm. let's say um, and it was we were very very close but there was always a Mary always kept a certain distance she she had struggles when she was younger. Um, she had a difficult situation with her father. Um, she, she, her mother was a single mother for a long time. Um, so um, she had some, some things of baggage, I guess it was, might have been related to, to that. But she, um, she was dedicated to Kung Nu. She, you know, had very firm feelings about how what O sensei intended and how she intended to teach she was an incredibly good teacher she was amazing um, at being able to convey ideas and and you know push you to to accomplish them um, she pushed hard she was a hard hard pusher she made us work hard um, but like I said, she could also make you feel so good about what you did, make you feel happy for making her happy. So yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, so you mentioned that she was she she was already a master before a master of Mary before she came to. Some no, no, she was a black belt when she came to Atlanta. Um, she was, I believe she was assigned on a third degree black belt. I remember she got her um, Yandan um, after she had come to Atlanta. And, um, and then um, I was in her, her master um, demonstration along with Sensei Doug and Sensei Ben Bosch. Mm. Um, now this is a good Master Mary story. Um, her, um, the training for her, you know, Mary, along with the other four that were the first four, five masters in the style. Um, and I mean, this is the first time people had achieved the rank that, that they had um, gone to of, of sixth degree to the level of, of master. So the testing was a big deal. I mean, we hadn't, you know, we hadn't crossed that bridge yet. Um, so, we, um, we were in her demo, uh, myself, Doug, and Ben, and we trained intensely. It was intense. And working with Mary was intense because, mm -hmm. you know, 
she wanted it to be master level demonstration. And um, so we were doing a lot of, lot of um, fast hard work. Um, she was very much into Aikido at the time and there were a lot of, a lot of throws, a lot of hard falls. Um, and uh, it was great. It was going to be a great demo. Mm -hmm. So we we're at the test. And, you know, right before, not long before the test, right before we're going to go on and do the demo, um, Mary got disoriented and she, we had, we were doing a little last minute practice and since they Doug will tell you the story and he may tell it better than I do, but we were doing some last minute practice and for whatever reason, she became convinced that we were coming in the wrong way mm. and she was completely convinced that we were doing it wrong we were entering the wrong way and suddenly and doug will tell you this too suddenly we realized that she was seeing it backwards from the way we were doing it and if we couldn't change her mind fast we were going to have to try to do this demo <laughs> or do something to adapt to the way that she was seeing it I mean, and I don't know if you've ever had that, but I know this happened to me before. You have suddenly you have a fixation, and you've decided something is different than the way you thought it was supposed to be. Mm. But she was that way. Bless his heart. Since they've been Bosch was high strung. Also, he just freaked out. He was like, he was like, oh my god, what's going to happen? We're going to like the whole thing's going to go. We're gonna, it's going to explode. Well, fortunately, since they dug and myself were able to communicate with Mary, talk with her. Um, I, I think some of my architectural um, ability to convey mm -hmm. space and direction and stuff, we finally convinced her that, no, we were doing it the right way. This is the way we come in, and this is the way it goes. And she finally accepted it literally almost right before we did the demo. And oh. then we did the demo, and it was great and it was a huge success and nobody except for the people we told the story to knew that it almost blew up completely <laughs> right right before we were doing it wow. it was part of the deal with all of a sudden we were in this gigantic gymnasium and um we used to talk about when we were testing with those sensei um those of us who were testing used to joke like where do you think he's going to stand because you always had to orient and face which way he was going to stand, and you know we would that would be we would be nervous about that. And sure enough, a lot of times you would walk into the room and stand somewhere else where you didn't expect, and you had to adapt. Yeah. Well, I think there was some of that going on that night. That there were, we were in this big gymnasium, all of a sudden, and of course, there's 300 people watching, and and there's just this mat out on the big on the floor. And I think Mary got disoriented in space, literally. She kind of got her orientation confused for a little while. Mm. But anyway, that's a Mary story. But <laughs> the, the, the end of the story is she did an awesome job. I mean, I don't know if there, I'm sure there's videotape of this stuff somewhere, but it was, it was freaking amazing. Awesome. She almost broke my thumb in the process of doing it. She was intense doing her stuff when there was one point there was a thumb lock she used to do a throw on me. Mm -hmm. And she was hard style. And I remember, I think definitely 
it hurt a lot. Yeah, yeah. It was it was serious. Hmm. So yeah, nice. So going back to so you you mentioned that she was a very excellent teacher. Now, in what ways? Now, how did she teach? Now, make her so. She she would teach by demonstration, by motivation. Um, I mean, if you you know look at the twelve shuns of teaching, she could exhibit all of the twelve shuns of teaching. Mm -hmm. um, but she um, she would be uh, inspirational, um, and she could break things down where you could see them. She had the Mary had an awesome memory, and mm. she like. She would never, she would learn a kata, she would know katas, and she would always remember them. And you could go literally, you know, years or so and ask her, um, can we do kankudai? Mm -hmm. And she'd go, okay, and she could do it. Um, so she had this incredible ability to retain. Mm. So that's important in an instructor to be able to retain knowledge so you can convey knowledge. Um, so she had that that ability she also was a really good motivator and it could be through um pushing us you know and making us you know afraid we didn't want to make her mad or disappoint her yeah. um or through making us feel really good about doing like i said she was kind of a combined good coach bad coach oh um, yeah built yeah. into one mm. um but uh, I think it was just her ongoing dedication. Kung Nu was such an important part of her life. And mm -hmm. she, she um, was able to convey that to her, her students. Um, you know, you can ask Sensei Gordon because, you know, I know he, she shared that with him mm -hmm. in, through his black belt training and his black belt test. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, she's, can, she was always very, very present. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you another quick uh, Master Mary story about how Tahara Kung knew was her family. I told you, I alluded to the fact that she had struggles with her, her real family, particularly mm -hmm. her father. Um, Kung knew became her family. And I know to some extent, Osensei was like a father figure to her in many ways. <clears throat> but she was get so excited about the annual training camp because for her, like it was for a lot of us, but really for her, it was like a family reunion, mm. going, getting to go back and see all of her friends and people she had known for many, many years to get to be with a sensei for you know days at a time. So she would get really wound up around training camp time before and you know be doing all these preparations and just i just remember just her just being like wound up <laughs> yeah. and she would literally call me at like three o'clock in the morning and oh, she wow. didn't know what time or didn't care what time it was and i'd be asleep and she'd have some idea something on her mind that she wanted to talk about because we were going to training camp and it might be this class that she was teaching that i was assisting with or something and she would be like and she wanted to talk for like the next hour mm. and it was just that was she was just so infused with the joy of kung nu and the idea that she was going to be immersed in it for the three or four days of training camp yeah 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 when you get too excited sometimes it's hard to sleep so you just think about stuff right <laughs> yeah she yeah she definitely would yeah so um 
what's uh so she studied you mentioned she studied aikido did she, she start trained in aikido for a while yeah she um you know mary was married briefly to an aikido instructor um mm -hmm. before master kicks um mm -hmm. very briefly mm -hmm. um but for a while, she um, did train at the Atlanta Aikido School. I actually mm -hmm. went with her for a, a period of time. We would go over there together. Mm -hmm. um, but she really um, trained and focused in it. And, you know, as it's a part of Kung Nu training, she really was um, interested in it and continued to explore it. Mm -hmm. I mean, we did some different um, cross training at the time. We did some judo. Um, mm -hmm cross-training and Aikido, but I think she really, I think she enjoyed the beauty of Aikido and the way Mary could move, the way she flowed, mm. it really, um, she was really good at it and it really suited her. And it also suited her because, you know, Mary was really small. Mm. Um, she was, you know, just a little over five feet tall. She was uh -huh. a small person, but she was extremely um, powerful because she had a lot of chi, she had a lot of yeah. internal strength. And Aikido was perfect for her in that regard because she could use that internal strength and didn't have to rely on muscle strength. So. Yeah, yeah. So a couple, couple of years ago, I think I started in training Aikido in uh, Atlanta, uh, Aikido Center of Atlanta. And yeah. then the head of school, uh, 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 Kennedy Sensei, he actually, yeah. when I told him that, oh, I actually start, I'm, I'm starting Kung Nu Summit Shu, right? And then he said, oh, I think he, he mentioned that Master Mary and I studied. Yeah, that oh. was it. That was where, yeah. We, yeah, yeah. where we went. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's nice. That's, and, you know, oh. Mary was memorable. Um, wherever she went, <clears throat> you know, she was one of the highest ranking women in martial arts across the country. <clears throat> but she was always memorable because of her presence and her ability. I remember she and I taking, we took a Tai Chi uh, class together for a while. And before we went in, she said, she said, I don't want to tell them, you know, that I'm a master. I don't want to tell you to tell them you're black belt, anything. I just, I just want to go and be a student. Mm -hmm. Well, we went into this class and we did just that. We didn't say anything. And we trained with the guy. And the instructor after, I think the first class, came over to us and said, okay, you guys have had training. <laughs> and then after that, he immediately wanted to jump to doing like push hands and stuff like that. And I'll tell you, Mary was a little frustrated because she really just wanted to be a student again. She mm -hmm. didn't want to be Master Mary. She wanted to <clears throat> just be able to be taught and mm -hmm. not have to be, you know, the big shot. Yeah. So, yeah. It's like the circle of now you being a, like, uh, What's it you you mentioned to be a nobody again. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And then probably going back to being white belt again. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Yeah. So, um, so I want to go back to your story a little bit. <laughs> so, okay. so, um, you were head of the school of some shoes. So, what was your number one goal when you were in the head of school? Um, I would say when I first started as the head of school, I was, I was, I was acting head of school a couple of times um, earlier on because um, if you know about Mary's history, she was ill twice. Mm -hmm. She had uh, cancer one time and she had heart disease another time. 
that required surgery. So during those periods of time, I was the acting instructor, head of school. Mm. Um, and then when she was finally um, was married to Master Case and moved away, I took over as you know, the actual head of school. My first goal was basically to try my best to retain her legacy and carry on, um, but also to try to find my own interpretation of that legacy because I knew I wasn't Mary, um, wasn't Mary in personality, I wasn't Mary in ability, um, but I wanted to carry on the, the spirit of what she had established. But then I also knew I had to find my own way. I mean, I had to be my own leader. Yeah. So it took a while. Um, one of the things I remember a lot <clears throat> of those first year or so when I first took over as head of school, the dojo had always been had very strong women in the dojo. Mm. Um, and a lot of that was because of Master Barry. But we had, you know, great other black belt women, instructors. Um, um, since Jessica, uh, Susan McLaren, since Heather, um, many other women. There had always been strong women in the dojo. Mm. And for a variety of reasons, on and about around the time that Mary moved on, those women had also moved on. They'd moved, literally moved out of the city or because of work or other um, situations. They were not there at the dojo anymore. <clears throat> and I remember feeling like, gosh, you know, how do I, how do I get that back again? Because that was a part of our legacy of always having these incredible women around. But there was a, there was kind of a dry spell for a while where we didn't have any black belt women. Um, <clears throat> so I felt very self-conscious about that for a while. <clears throat> but fortunately, over time, you know, all you could do is just keep working and keep trying to develop and train. And over time, people did come along, like Sensei Rachel and, and others that kind of took up the reins and became their own expression, their own strong women. Yeah. Um, that was something that was, that was significant in my memory. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the other was just trying to get, I mean, keep Sung Ming Shu um, viable and vibrant and um, <clears throat> got it at the time, uh, some of it was just practical, like paying the bills. Uh, yeah. We were, this in the early days, we, we didn't have the after school program yet and the income it produced. And, you know, Sung Ming Shu for a long time lived hand to mouth, physically, you know, financially. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a challenge there just to make sure we always got and retained students so that we could pay dues, so that we'd have the money to pay our rent. Mm. But um, I think, you know, my goal for it was to continue to see it grow and thrive and mm. for other, to develop other leaders, other black belts, um, and to be able to delegate, which I think I was good at, fairly good at, you know. Sung Ming Shu was blessed by having a lot of black belts over time. It's always been that way. It's remarkable. Yeah. Um, I mean, you go to dojos around the country of many styles and other Kung Lu dojos, and often there'll be maybe two or three black belts, maybe sometimes just one. Um, 
having 12, 10, 12, 13, 14 black belts at a time was, was amazing. It's remarkable. Yeah. But it also gave us this, you know, incredible ability to um, teach on so many different levels with so many different abilities and so many different personalities. Yeah, yeah. So I never had to be the one guy. Yeah. I was fortunate that way. Mm. Um, you know, and I think Mary was, was able to, she was kind of the one guy for a long time, but it did grow during her tenure so that there were others of us also that took that burden off of her and shared with her. So yeah. mm -hmm. I think that worked um, particularly well for me. Exactly. Yeah, nice. Again, going back to Night Nose, the side effect of that, you also delegate delegation, you also create leader at the same time, right? So we Creating went. other leaders, yeah. And I, you know, that's, since I don't have children, that's the closest I've come sort of in some ways to feeling like passing down a legacy, you know, creating other leaders. And, and I've been fortunate to watch a lot of them start from white belts, from brand new walking in the dojo the first day mm -hmm. to becoming black belts. Yeah. Um, it, it's that's an amazing process it's like watching your to some extent it's like watching your kids go from grade school mm -hmm. to college to graduate school yeah and yeah. become adults yeah and they're making contributions right to the making world. contributions yeah yeah on their own yeah yeah and talking about legacy now was what's your you were talking about like uh, your own, you, you will try to have your own interpretation of Sense uh, Master Mary's legacy of some yeah. of you. Like, did you, what was your, what was your interpretation? My what? I'm sorry? In interpretation of that legacy. Because I think uh, we, we were talking about, like, uh, you were talking about like, taking over as a head of school for some issue. And you were talking about, you will try to come up with your own uh, interpretation of the legacy. Yeah. I do. So, what was your interpretation? My own interpretation, yeah, is was how I communicated to students and how I communicated uh, ideas. And I guess a lot of that had to do with how I delegated authority. Um, you know, um, it was a matter of of trying to find my own way mm. to continue. Um, pushing Sung Ming Shu forward and always having it be a place of excellence. Um, Sung Ming Shu was fortunately, but also because of all of our work um, and the leadership, has always been recognized in the style is, you know, I don't want to be arrogant and say like the best dojo, but we're certainly one of the best dojos in, in the style. Mm -hmm. We're rec recognized as that. And I always wanted to um, have a legacy that we maintain that level of excellence, mm. that we were always you know, on the um, cutting edge of learning new things. Mm. Um, we didn't always get it right the first time. We always mm. said there was jokes about the Sung Ming Shu way, but um, that we were always present and continuing to try to develop our dojo, so in turn, we help represent the style of Kung Nu um, in the most positive light. Yeah, so you, are, you, are you saying that some issue way is never get it right in the first time? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. But I would say we certainly had some of our own interpretations of, of the way that we like to do things. And sometimes they would, uh, you know, 
other instructors might make little jokes every now and then about, oh yeah, that's the way something Shu does it, but that's not necessarily the way we do it. But I see. It, no, it doesn't mean that it wasn't right. It just means that it was maybe our interpretation. I uh, see. The way it was right. And a lot of times I would defend that and say, I think the way we might have interpreted it might have been the right way or the better way. But eventually over time, as we all had to standardize more and mm -hmm. compromise and find ways to, to merge ideas, then there were times we had to give up some of our little Sangmingxu traits. Got you, got you. Okay, good, good. It's good to have your own uh, ideas sometimes and to, to oh, contribute yeah. you as well. Yeah. So, um, what is the hardest decision you ever made as the head of school? Um, golly. It could be, uh, it doesn't have to be the hardest, could be one hard decision. Well, there, yeah, uh, you know, it's one, I think in some ways an easy decision and a hard decision, but it was a hard decision, was who to pass on the, the, the head of school to. I mean, I knew, it was Lee and Asher, um, I knew how I wanted that to, to go, but there were things that were involved in the decision that were complex and challenging. And that was a hard decision because you know, it was one that I wanted to make sure I got right mm. um, because that had to do with the same thing of continuing the legacy of Sung Ming Shu. So that was a difficult decision, um, an important decision. I would put it that way. Mm. So talking about hard decision, what's the hardest decision you ever made in your, in your own life? Oh, hard decisions. I, you know, you know, when you live 70 years, there's a lot of hard decisions you make over the years. Um, you know, I could think about all the way back to deciding which college to go to and things like that. But um, since being more, you know, recent, more relevant, I say making the decision to move, to move yeah. down here, to leave Atlanta, to, um, to take this big step. Yeah. It was a hard decision because mm -hmm. it, it's a big big permanent long-lasting it's a life decision yeah. when you make life decisions mm. they're hard even good decisions even easy fun decisions like deciding to get married mm. yeah that's a good and, and and fun and loving decision but it's a hard decision because it's a big deal it's a commitment yeah. so the move is a, is a recent really hard decision because it's a life decision yeah so how do you what would you suggest to someone if someone is struggling with some decision right now? What, what do you think? What's the metrics? Now how, how should they tackle that decision? Oh, that's a really good question, Shu. Um, <clears throat> try to get input from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, see things from um, different sides. Um, find someone or some people to talk to about it. Don't try to make the decision by yourself. Mm. Um, get input. Um, do research. I'm big on research on things. When I want to do something or make a decision, even as something like buying a car, I actually enjoy doing research. I look into it. I spend time. Um, I think that's um, 
a good thing to do. I think trying to get perspective on a decision, get input, but then ultimately you have to have the courage to make the decision yourself. Mm. You have to eventually, yeah. you have, or if you have a partner, the two of you or your partner, you have to make that decision together. But ultimately, you weigh the input, you listen, you research, whatever it is, the process to get there, but then make the decision and stick with it. Mm. Do what it takes to get the job done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, that's good. That's good. Because uh, right now, you know, I'm sometimes uh, people have, like, as you mentioned, the courage to make that decision, right? For me, yeah. I, I have been in, I tried to get my PhD for a long time. Yeah. And, like, I was like, only recent, like recent year and recent, only recently I've decided either, you know, this is the cop time. If I don't get it, I'm just going to quit, right? So yeah. sometimes like, sometimes quitting is not really a bad thing, right? So that means you move on to something else. So the that current, is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a decision that can be yeah. the right decision also. You know, there may be a time, and I'm not suggesting this for you, but there may be a time there, is a time in almost everybody's life when it's time to let something go. I can yeah. say the same when I made a decision to retire from my architectural practice. Yeah. I had to decide that it was time to quit that, yeah. let that go. Yeah. Um, so sometimes letting something go and quitting it is, is the right decision. Yeah. But then sometimes, like in your case, it, it may be just a function of having to decide for yourself, what is best for you? What is the right thing for you? Not what you're supposed to do, what other people are telling you should do. What is the thing in your heart that is, you know is right for you to do? Yeah. Whether it's difficult to do or whether it lets you off the hook or whatever, somehow you have to reach into your own heart and find out what the right thing for you to do is. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, and that's why I ask you these questions, right? Because I'm struggling with my these questions myself. So, yeah, so it's, like, yeah. It's, it's life. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah, and that's a big decision. Yeah, yeah. Your PhD. That's, yeah. yeah. What is the saddest moment of your life? Oh, let's see. Um, Leah and I both, my, my father died first in 1996, and that was sad. It's always sad to lose a parent. I love my father, um, and he died probably, he was in his 70s, but he died from complications of emphysema. He smoked cigarettes when, because he was in World War II, and he, you know, a lot of guys from that generation smoke cigarettes and have caught up with him. That was sad because I think he could have lived more years. He worked his whole life really hard and he only had a couple of years at the very end when he, before he got really sick and to kind of enjoy life without having to work and before he got sick. So that was very sad. And then Leah and I lost the three, other three parents, her, mother and father and my mother within a relatively very short period of time over just a, a couple of years period of time and it was like 
it was very sad because all of a sudden all of our parents were gone mm. and we it was like oh we got to be adults now we got to grow up but it was also a sad it was very sad for both of us for because i loved her parents it, it's odd but we all got along we loved each other um, mm. i missed them i missed my mother I missed my father one of the saddest things i have is i you know you and learn this in hindsight i wish i had spent more time asking my father about his life mm. i wish i had spent more time asking my mother about her life not just knowing her as my mother and, and my father him as my father but what were they like when they were kids and young i knew some things but i didn't know a lot mm. i wish i had spent more time finding out more oh wow yeah knows a I guess next, because right now I'm in an age where I'm kind of worried about my parents, you know. And the yeah. So I was like, what can I do to, you know, uh, to make sure the time we have, treasure the time we have right now, right? So, yeah. Well, I would say, at least from my experience, uh, I would encourage you to talk to them and mm -hmm. not just talk like, you know, shallow conversation, but if they're willing, try to engage them in um, the story of their life, some aspects of their life. Mm. And the way you might do this, I heard this on the radio the other day, mm. but the way you might do this is actually know something mm. and bring it up to them, rather mm. than just say, tell me the story of your life. Uh, Maybe you know something about where, where were they born? What was that city like? Or where, what was their life like? You give them something to start talking about. Mm. Um, and maybe it makes it easier for them to talk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, that's good. All right, that's a good tip. I, I will use that. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, last two questions. And then, uh, how would you like to be remembered? Oh, yeah, you mentioned that in your notes. That's a good question. Um, uh, I think I would like to be remembered as that, uh, that I hopefully exhibited the 3-0 principle. Mm. Um, you know, the open mind, open heart, open arms, that, that you know, I, I was engaged, um, I wanted to learn, um, I was loving, and I was welcoming, and that I had some positive influence on people around and after me, yeah. that carried on to others, that they passed it on to. Mm. All right, that's good, well said. So, um, last question is, um, if you could put word or message, you know, outside a dojo window for like, people driving by, what would yeah. it be? That's a really good question. And I thought about that a little bit, and there's a lot of different things that we could say. But um, I would say, I would put the phrase, um, find balance here. Say it again. Find balance here. Oh, find balance. Find balance here. And because I like things that have multiple meanings. Mm -hmm. So find balance here. Okay, it can mean very physical. You know, you train in martial arts, it's good for your balance, it's good for your physical ability. But I mean it in a deeper sense of the way that I think what I think the dojo is good at representing. It, find, it helps you find balance in your life. I remember for a long time when I was younger and even all the way through training at Sung Ming Shu, I used to tell people that going to the dojo was like 
moving meditation. Mm. That um, in my career, my work was a lot of times very stressful. Mm. You know, owning a business, running a business, stuff there could be very stressful. And I always, almost always felt like when I went into the dojo for that hour and a half or so that we were there, I didn't think about any of that stuff. I was only there and training. Mm. And that helped keep me balanced, gave mm. me balance. Like, you know, got me away from the stress for yeah. that yeah. period of time. So because it has multiple meanings, that's what I would put, find balance here. And then maybe you would get somebody intrigued and they'd go and come knock on the door and go like, what do you mean with fine balance here? Yeah. All right. And we'd say, come on in and uh, yeah. take a class and you can start figuring it out for yourself. Yeah, you'll find it. You yeah. know, <laughs> keep training. Just, yeah, yeah. Jump, you'll find it. Whatever balance means to you, right? Yeah, whatever balance means to you.